Caught Offside with Andrew Gundling and J.J. Devaney. Caught offside from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? I've got an oozing knee, Andrew. Oh, it was the first thing I saw when you walked in. Actually, you you noted it straight away, and you said that it's hard looks to miss. Horrific, yeah. Uh, you know, seven aside soccer on a Thursday night, and uh, you get the old turf burn, and because that joint moves a lot, mm. it just never <laughs> it takes forever to properly heal. Now you walked in here with this giant wound, yeah, in shorts. Mm. Let the air. I it. believe if I know you, and I do quite well, I think that you love this. <laughs> you want the world to see it. You want ex- you. I took the bait straight away. I said, "Oh, where'd you get that?" Oh, well, I was uh, playing a little uh, weekday. Uh, what was it? Five aside, seven aside, seven aside. Yeah. Why are you talking like that? That's how. That's how you were. You you try to act humble, but like the the pride of playing and getting no. in, still getting injured in some I, way. You, you love know, it. You I, most, love it. Most of the time, what do I come in wearing? Jeans. Right, because you didn't have a wound. Yeah. Now you have one. Not, you need the world to see it. No, I, you want to be asked about I it. need the wound not to weep into the cloth, which is an image. <laughs> and seriously, be stuck to that because then taking the jeans oh, off. Uh, we've all had that. We've all been somewhere. there. Oh yeah. Boy, what a start <laughs> to this podcast! <laughs> it only gets better from here. I'll tell you what. We're going to talk to Jack. Pitt Brook from The Athletic uh, in just a few minutes, covers Tottenham, the Premier League, England, um, but we're going to talk to them specifically about, uh, I guess, the Battle of the Bridge Part 2 Yeah. Uh, over the weekend. What a game, my goodness. Uh, we'll get into it a little bit ourselves, but so Jack's standing by. He's got other stuff to say also on the Premier League. But, I've been uh, chasing Jack for a while now, to be honest with you. Yeah, he, you he, have. He's been my Frankie de Jong, and, <laughs> and, now we've, and now we've reeled him in. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking forward to that, because he's great. Uh, let's see, a lot of stuff to get to. Obviously, Manchester United, it's... <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's... Uh, what? Oh, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I, I, so my, my brother-in-law, my sister, they were over and they were leaving on Saturday, so we took them for uh, a brunch. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what, I'll record United in Brentford. I, I, I'll see it. I'll give time to my family first. My phone starts blowing up on the way back. 3 nil, 4 nil. It's not even half time. No, it happened so quickly. Oh, it was, it was, it was, I couldn't believe what was transpiring. It was one of those... I mean, look, early season games are not often like, I remember where I was no. when. But you might have had a couple of them this weekend. The, it's the lowest point since United were relegated, I think, in, in the mid-70s. It's, uh, oh, it's got statement. to be. It's really? got to be. Yeah. Because even Ron Atkinson, they were, they were there or thereabouts. You know, they were top four, top you might five. Be right. I mean, they'd win like, a cup here or there. Fergie comes in. All right, maybe the five nil against City in '89 in the Derby. Yeah, that's City before they were City. I mean, certainly right. But Brentford. Yeah. Like I don't want to be condescending, but oh well, <laughs> you do it so well. Why wouldn't you want to? <laughs> um, I have some thoughts on Arsenal as well. Uh, also, I've started. I feel bad that I've only just started, but I'm I'm into All or Nothing, and I have you thoughts. I love it. I'll talk more about it. Okay, but 
I'll, yeah, when we get to the Arsenal section of the pot, I'll, I'll get into a little bit of that. But let's let's just dive in, JJ. Chelsea and Spurs, they play out a memorable 2-2 draw at Stamford Bridge. I mean, good Lord. <laughs> this was one of those where it's just... I mean, it was... It's just one of those games that had everything. Yeah, it, it, what was it a classic where the goals the most unbelievable? Well, Koulibaly's, I suppose, was a really yeah. unbelievable goal. But it, you know, it wasn't a game that was. Oh my God, look at those skills! It it was a game that just had every little bit of element that goes into what we call Barclays, <laughs> into what we call English top flight football. It was compelling from beginning to end and played at a, an amazing intensity as well. I thought. Chelsea, that's as good a half of football as I've seen from Chelsea since Tuchel took over, I would I would think. Even on the way to the Champions League uh, win, I didn't think they were anywhere close to that. And rumours of their demise seem to be completely exaggerated. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Because uh, there's obviously other stuff to get to. The controversies, the managers. you got uh, referees, managers, Graham Souness, start the whole thing. A little bit of everything. Hair pulling. Yeah. Yeah, uh, hand grabbing, hand grabbing, uh, no fouls. Or we won't call certain fouls. So uh, certain obvious fouls, we'll let them go. Uh, Jorginho trying to do a uh, some kind of a stand on the ball in the penalty box when he should have just kicked it out. Incredible stuff. It had everything, but let's we'll get to all the I call it extraneous. It's kind of the stuff that is, is most interesting in some ways. But let, we'll start with the actual soccer, with the football of it all. And what you were talking about there, this game is was very weird in that, like, we talk all the time about in this sport, a draw is not always a draw. There are a lot of draws where you can assign a winner and a loser. Right. And if you're watching the game, as I was, as you were, as all of you guys listening were, like, you couldn't help but feel when that one ended that Tottenham won that game. Like, that was a win for them. And Harry Kane, in his interview with the BBC, even referred to the goal as, as uh, when he scored the winner. He didn't refer to it as the equalizer. Like, that was what was in your head as Spurs when that game ended. You felt like you had won. Now, the reason I say it's weird is because, okay, that's the exhilaration and the adrenaline of the moment. Um, they were on the doorstep of defeat. They pulled it back in a place where they never do well. They got a point, yeah. and Chelsea felt awful with that happening. So you feel like you win. But what you just said there, the reports of Chelsea's demise being greatly exaggerated, that's kind of the bigger story here. Now, it, when, it is. when it's all said and done and the season's over and we see how the points shake out, who knows? That point might have been massive for Tottenham to go and grab that in a game that they had no business getting a point out of. But watching Chelsea, I mean, from the Tottenham perspective, that first half was demoralizing. <laughs> I, I haven't seen Tottenham look so feeble against any opponent. Um, and, I mean, and... All we all we've been hearing in the lead up to this is that you know this was kind of Tottenham's moment. Uh, Chelsea are on, like we said, the decline. The the transfers that they had targeted don't want to go there. It's it's not going well for them. They were disappointing last year, and Tottenham they couldn't get the ball past midfield. It felt like I mean I guess the greatest compliment that I can pay Chelsea in in the way that first half felt. You know sometimes you feel like you're watching a game and you're like boy it's like they're playing with twelve men. I thought Chelsea had 14, yeah. 15, 16. There were two guys around the ball wherever it was. Their press was perfect. Tottenham were suffocated. Kane, Son, it's like they weren't even on the field. Yeah. That was – now, they, they had a hard time sustaining it. Tottenham made tweaks at the half. But it's not like Tottenham came out and the whole game shifted. Chelsea were still probably the better team in the second half as well. Sure. Uh, Tottenham just took advantage of the few chances that they had. 
But you didn't see the Tottenham that they finished the season. You didn't see oh, Kane dropping off, nobody close to him turning and playing a pass into Son. You saw it once, maybe you saw it twice. But otherwise, there was somebody pressing, somebody making life difficult, somebody stealing the ball. Um, I thought I thought that was classic Tuchel. He, he looked at what Conte's Tottenham do well and nullified it. And I think it's, on, on inversely, or on, on the other side of things, I think it's a credit to Tottenham that they were able to dig deep and get something out of that game because, if we're being honest, folks, it could have been over much earlier than it was. But Tottenham, through, I suppose, I won't say, I don't like saying the help of the referee because that's not right, but with the way the game flowed from an officiating standpoint, Tottenham were able to... They were fortunate. They were fortunate, but, I mean, there was great quality from those Perisic corners. You have to win those corners. Um... Well, that's the thing is like they were handed a bit of a gift from the officiating, but they still had to do stuff to, I guess, take advantage of that opportunity that they were given. Sure. Um, But look, it would be horribly disingenuous for me to sit here and act like and start to say, oh, well, that stuff like that happens to everyone. No, this was disingenuous away. (laughs) Tottenham were they benefited greatly from refereeing that had it been in the reverse, I would have been furious about Mm. If you're a Chelsea fan who was afraid to turn on this podcast today because you were afraid of what I might say. Ah. No, 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 no. I can I can remove myself enough to commiserate with your point of view and say, yeah, if. If that Bentoncourt situation had gone in the reverse and Chelsea had scored off of that, I would have been pretty furious as well. Now, I think there's two phases to that. Sorry to... Yeah. The first phase is, it's a free kick. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday. And it should have been blown then, but it wasn't. Not dissimilar, although a little bit different, to the Henderson free kick. There is... So, so call the free kick there and get that right. Mm. There was too much that elapsed then afterwards. Like I said, Jorginho had a chance to clear the ball. Oh, yeah. No, JJ, I think four different Chelsea players had touches of the ball, most prominently Jorginho, who could have gotten rid of it, but it was taken off of him. Yeah. Like, so, I'm I'm fine. I don't have a problem with, like, play not, it, it should be called back or whatever. It, it should have been a foul in the first in place. In the first place, 100%. Um, and then, and uh, Kukurea, uh, you, um, you just can't do that. And, and the idea that it's not a violent act because it's hair-pulling... It just he's he's absolutely it's a red card. I mean it, what are we there's almost no sense in even Do you remember the, the viral video that went around about a decade ago? And I, I, it was one of those moments where you feel like however reprehensible this thing that I'm watching is, this is on the internet and it's never gonna go away for this girl. It was a college soccer match here in the United States and the player it was just a compilation of horrific tackles mm-hmm. and it seemed to take forever before she get a, a yellow or a red I don't know if she ever did get a red but one of them was grabbing the ponytail of the opponent and violently jerking the head back <laughs> that was it. You, you just can't do it well you can and, and, only in sex masochism according to El, um, Louis Van Hal <laughs> as he told us Louis laid down <laughs> the rules very clearly I think that is in the rule book yeah but you can't do it. And the idea that VAR then doesn't say give Anthony Taylor the heads up or tell him you, you've you missed something massive there is... I don't get it. I don't understand how it happened. And I don't want... like there's so. I mean, the internet's the worst place to be after these incidents where the rationalization ometer 
uh, goes into over overdrive. I mean, Liverpool fans were. I had to. I had to put. And you know me. I love my phone. I put it aside after mm. the game because of the the Nunez. Well, we'll get to that as well. Yeah, but um, but look, I mean, with these with these calls, you get a fair amount of whataboutism. Um, that always goes on. Get. I mean, look, like Kukurea stepped on Christian Romero earlier in the match. Whether or not it was accidental or on purpose, I I don't know. Um, does Rom- that matter? I don't know. Romero was having running battles with everyone. He's just a guy you want on your team and you never want to face. The way he he was manhandling Havertz in the corner, just like any chance he could get to get into his face, Kukurea takes it to the limit, to the absolute edge. Um, I I applaud his uh, applaud his his aggression because that's Romero. I, I excuse me, Romero. I, uh, yeah, I think I think for a lot of fans out there, because um, remember last season he was a very high profile signing for Tottenham, but he was hurt. He had COVID issues. Like he didn't really become a fixture in their squad until probably the second half of the season. Yeah. Um, so, I think a lot of fans around the league learned over the weekend what Tottenham fans have now known for a while that he is expert level in in this kind of behavior. Um, the housery of s. I mean, it's. I think he he pushes the limits. He's a red card waiting to happen. Yeah. Um, he's spectacular as a defender. He's excellent, uh, but boy, you can just—it's—it's <laughs> it's gonna bite them. Like you just know, and Conte has to manage this um, because Romero—he's such—he's got to knock player. it off now because the target's on him now after this game. So he's got to knock it You're off. You're right. I don't know—is that a switch you can flick? Like this is kind of—you can. This is kind of how he plays. You can still be a tough, teak tough defender, be really, really aggressive. But not that kind of stuff, that off the ball stuff, the screaming in the face, the pushing uh, Havertz in the back, <laughs> the bullying. You don't have to do that. You don't. Well, I, I refuse I, to believe that. It's funny because um, it gives like, him an edge, does it? Some of those things, look, the hair pulling is that's a category unto itself. It's ridiculous. He shouldn't have done it. He yeah. should have been red carded for it. Um, but like some of the other things, like the pushing, sho- like the shoving, stuff like that, like I can see. Well, it's part of the game. Yeah, I'm okay with what about the screaming in, in Reese James's face after the equalizing? <laughs> loved goal? it, loved it. Did you? Because oh. he he did that once before to Harry Maguire, also. But as I as I grow older and I continue to play, a lot of the joy. Do you do that? No, I don't scream in someone's face. But I, like that seven aside league that I I talked about there, where we got hurt. Like, like there's me and another Irish guy on it, Francie, and we bring levels of aggression that. <laughs> oh boy! But you step on the field and the switch goes, and and that ultra com- competitive side comes out in you where you just can't countenance. You don't want to be beaten. You want to be on top. That domination. It's a it's a part of the it's a it's certainly part of the the male construct, and it's definitely a part of the sporting construct that the wish to dominate over someone else. Mm-hmm. So when I see him screaming in the face, do I think it's a cool thing? No, not particularly. But I applaud it because I understand where it comes from. Does that is that I'll tell. I mean, in a situation like that, before with Maguire over the weekend with James, those are the guys I applaud. I don't know how, like, <laughs> Chelsea dominated this game, and they've just allowed an equalizer that they probably felt never should have happened based on all these fouls that had happened previously. And now Reese James is being screamed at in his face by the guy, the yeah. ultimate stir, and he didn't even. He doesn't even react. Like it's but, human nature to punch. But You've that is, punch somebody who does that to but you. But this like, is from the same filing cabinet of uh, 
sporting behaviour that Alan Iverson stepping over the guy he's just twisted into knots. It's that need to dominate. It's that whole posterizing thing. That that is that is in sport. I don't care what yeah. anyone says. Sport is ultimately about dominating on the scoreboard, but there's you do it on the field as well, and that's a manifestation of it. Uh, Push his glasses to the center of nose. <laughs> uh, more on the game itself. Um, with the uh, the Chelsea side of it, like, are they? So, what do we take away from this now? Well, if you're uh, Chelsea, um, first of all, the fitness of their of their uh, wing backs, their outside players, is key. The fitness of Angola. I thought Angola Conte was great. He was great until he wasn't because it looks like he could be out for a month with a hamstring problem. That's, or, well, that's true. A recurrence, but. I mean, if Chelsea were to get uh, Frankie de Jong, um, centre forward, that so that centre forward position for them as well, that is not sorted out. But they are, if that's the evidence, and that's what Tuchel is able to do with a squad he is not best pleased with, that it's not to the fullest. Um, you know, there's players... I mean, he probably wants to get rid of Kristen Pulisic at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, so add all that in, they're in much better sh- uh, much better shape than I expected. Now, I was chided by the aforementioned Francie, who is a Chelsea fan. He said, what do you want about them finish fifth and sixth? Or sixth? And I'm like, that, that's just me going off pre-season and what the, the way the manager was talking. That was thrown out the window. That's with, not a sixth-place side. No, not with that level of performance. No, they have to keep it up. And if the squad is not what the manager wants, is that sustainable? I don't know. But Chelsea looked much better um, at the weekend against proper opposition. Raheem Sterling, once again, I mean, he's he's a threat. He's such a threat with the ball. Mason Mount, I, I still, what I, I kind of, Mason Mount was great in this game. And you know what I think of him as a player. But I go back to what I said preseason about him is that if he can just contribute goals he got that one opportunity on the right where you'd like to see him curl it in the top corner he fired it over the net little things like that that if he can just it's it's how he levels up to that next echelon of player he's close he's close to it so what i mean because that's my problem with this game ultimately chelsea dominated this game they did score twice so i'm not going to sit here and say that they didn't generate opportunities although although one of them let's be honest it's one of the goals of the season but like, is Koulibaly going to do that again? Like, are you drawing up the corner kick volley for your for your center back? No, and also, so like, are, are Spurs going to be so asleep on the corner kick that they leave him with that amount of space? I know it's zonal marking, and you're you probably you probably I you, still, take, you take your chances you have, with the center back who's out at the eighteen yard line. Like, you just you the do. Spurs are incredibly passive there because don't forget he's an aerial threat as well. If he had run five or six yards, then for he, a, but then he for enters. A, it's zonal marking. Then he enters a zone and he gets picked up. Where, he's got, he, where he's standing, he's there's not re, you don't really a think man there's of a his, reason to. Yeah, a man of his size getting a run on any kind of ball, I don't like in the box. Uh-huh. I don't like. Then it. you don't. Then you then you want man marking. You're not a zonal guy. No, I I I just think the minute the ball is delivered, then you react. Zonal is not passive. It's not meant to be. Just because you take up a position, not a person, doesn't mean that you don't react yeah. to the ball. And what a finish, though! It was it was unbelievable. It was per- what a and, goal. and he had just sh- he just absolutely shanked one um, five minutes beforehand. But um, but what's interesting to me in talking about Chelsea is the center forward thing is real because and I'm going to talk about that later in the podcast okay. when we talk about Christian Pulisic. Um, but like Chelsea dominated this game. 
but how many? I mean, well, look at how Havertz many great mitts. chances did da- they have? Havertz was one. That is a miss. Sterling at this had level. one. Uh, that he kind of dribbled, dribbled, dribbled to get himself into possession, uh, position, and then put it wide. But the, but here's but like, the, but then you know, but, sorry to, again, but you talk about Sterling. He does that dribble, and he cuts back this wonderful cross, floats it to the far post, and there is not a person there, and Tottenham can clear. Mm. That's where you want your centre forward to be. Right. And I wonder. Look, it wasn't working out with 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 Timo Werner. That was pretty much a disastrous signing, and they had to cut and move him on to bring someone in. But now the clock is ticking, and who can they get? Pretty amazing. Ver- Timo Werner was there. So he played over the weekend for Leipzig on Saturday, yeah. scored, which I thought was something. With, with the a little bit of help. A, a lot of help. Uh, and then he was there at Stamford Bridge cheering on Chelsea. This um, used was, to be my playground. I thought, I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, on the Tottenham side, like you said, this was this is one of those where the result is what matters. Well, uh, when you see Harry Kane on a through ball... 1v1 with the goalkeeper, completely scuffing his shot wide. You definitely think this is not going to be our day because nine times out of ten he buries that. And yeah. certainly at his end of season form, you would have expected him to. It didn't happen. So you're you're thinking, what's going to... Nothing's going to happen here for Spurs. That was our chance. Chance is over. And they find a way to dig one out, his little glancing header. So I think that's one that builds. Conte was in, interesting in the in the post match where he talked about we know there's a gap between us and Chelsea. Like so, Conte is not under the illusions that that Spurs are the completed article yet, which I I find kind of interesting. Um, they're still a work in progress, but to get out with a point is especially the history, the weight of just being a ragdoll for Chelsea. It's really good to because that's a sickening one. An absolute sickener for for Thomas Tuchel and incredible, yeah. He acted so in the post match. Yeah. Um, last bit on the game, uh, the Kane goal. He ties Sergio Aguero fourth all time top scorer in the Premier League with 184. Rapidly approaching Andy Cole, who was at 187. Oh, Cole is going to be dust soon. You would think. Yeah. yeah wow. You would think he's done it. He f- it feels like he's done it in short order. He's 28, 29. Whew. It's amazing. The one-season wonder that just kept going and going and going. On the Mount Rushmore of dumb narratives, that one, I think, has to be there, no? But people were... one-season wonder narrative on him? People were gambling, though. He was just like, we've seen kids like that come in before. I can think back to when uh, Danny Catamattery started for Everton in the late 90s. And because, you know, because he's come through your system, you, you think, oh, he's going to be great. And they come and they, they flame out. And I guess people were thinking this guy was on loan at Millwall, Norwich, didn't really score anywhere. You're right. There was He's a bit awkward, he's a bit beanpole-y, and he just took his opportunity and ran with it and proved all the time. It's 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 a great story. On the managers. Yeah. I'm just gonna put it out there right now. Um, I don't know how everyone feels about this kind of thing. I love it. These guys are like this is something that this league has that I think is to be treasured. There are characters in this league yeah. that are just so compelling. They're maniacs. Yeah. Like these are grown men. And apparently, I was I was listening to something uh, where they said that they there's a lot of off-field respect between Tuchel and Conte. Like, a lot. And uh, It's easy for me to believe that these were just two guys who are... They're, highly emotional. Yeah. I mean, we've seen Tuchel many times drop to his knees on... Mis- he did it in this game. 
early in the game on on you've seen he, it Kristen Pulisic he did seen it, it to Pulisic yeah. in the Champions League final he drops to his knees like this is a, a highly emotional human being and Conte is a maniac a bona fide lunatic so yeah this is these are you know two bulls in a cage with each other like but you know what uh, for all the the machismo in the Sky Studio afterwards where you had Graham Sooners talking we got our football back there and 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 saying how you know, this is the game I remember and we were in danger of... The argument between the two managers, not a punch was thrown, not a slap, nothing. This was, if you want to boil it down, two dorks <laughs> on the sideline who were very highly strong. Yeah. I mean, the only physical contact was an aggressive handshake. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think it's great... It, the, the Premier League's ability to throw up these these managerial sideshows. I mean, it's always been there. It's always Fergie versus Keegan, Fergie versus Wenger, Fergie versus pretty much everyone, you know? It was Wenger and Mourinho. That was- Mourinho and Wenger. Call him a voyeur. Uh, Mourinho and Benitez. Like, we've seen it all the way through. And I mean, Sam Allardyce has had more fights. Allardyce versus Benitez. Like, it's always been able to do this. So even a dull game can be enlivened by the fact that we've got this other soap opera on the side. It was great theatre. Yeah, and, and the people who say, well, it's, you know, it's not the kind of thing we want to see. It's exactly the kind of thing we want to see. I mean, ex- then explain it to your kids. This is not the way we behave, okay? <laughs> you know, there. It's not a hard fix. Uh, I, I think it's fun. Like, I don't I can't wait for the next meeting against this team to see these guys again. Because, like, it's gonna, it's gonna keep happening. They are who they are. Um, I got, yeah. I, I just, I enjoyed it. What's the, um, the handshake at the end? That whole situation. Tuchel, he didn't look me in the eye. Ugh. Whatever. That's all not. Tuchel, Tuchel just wanted to be mad at him. Yeah, like, of it's course. Not, it's not because Conte didn't look him in the eye. He just wanted to be uh, mad at him. Anthony Taylor wound Tuchel into such a knot. Yes. Such a knot. And Conte was there celebrating, benefiting from all this, and celebrating the way he celebrates will make anyone on yeah. the opposition angry. So Tuchel, he needed a foil. He needed to be mad at someone. It's and that displacement, was the guy. Because Conte didn't actually do anything. But I just picture these two men trying to crush the other one's hand. Do you have uh, a specific person? Like, I once met Mike Ditka and shook his hand. I thought he was going to break every bone. Really? And he had a. The firmest handshake. I I've hope never... you didn't come with a wet fish. You got to give a firm handshake. No, I'm not a I'm not a wet fish handshake guy. That's that's very uncomfortable. Oh, it's terrible when, it, especially when it's cold. It's a, yeah, co- it's a yeah. cold, slightly damp. Do you have anybody like that that you've ever met who you were like, oh my god, he's gonna break my hand? I shook hands with Chris Canty right before we came on air. There, I hadn't okay. seen him in a while, and uh, Chris is an imposing figure. And uh, shaking hands with him and surviving it, it it's life affirming. Really? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of someone though that really tried to really tried to like Chris is just big and he's just strong he's not trying to dominate me with the handshake <laughs> at least I hope not I'm trying to think of someone who I've met that genuinely was out to, to do the old I'm gonna I wanna I wanna show you that I'm in charge here yeah, I'm gonna I, do it I, kindly I, and sub, but subtly subtly uh, by slightly crushing one of your yeah. your, your bones in the hand <laughs> I can't think of someone uh, okay no, I can't. I'll be that guy. Do you, here, we want to shake hands right now? I'll crush every bone in that Go on, let's go, let's go. Yeah, come on, yeah. Bring it in there. Yeah. 
All right, this All right, is <laughs> it's getting weird. Uh, I'll tell you what. Let's go ahead. We'll take a break ourselves right now. I'll allow. My, I'll, I'll go ice my hand from that interaction. <laughs> then Jack Pitbrook of the Athletic is standing by. We're going to talk a little bit more to him uh, about this and about other things in the Premier League as well. Don't go anywhere. Oh, back now on Caught Offside. So excited about our guest today, JJ. I am a longtime reader of his over at The Athletic, where he covers Tottenham, England, the Premier League, and a, a listener of his as well on the View from the Lane podcast. It's Jack Pitt Brook on the program with us now. What's up, Jack? How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. The, the pleasure is ours. Uh, and we want to start with Tottenham and Chelsea from over the weekend. Good Lord. What a game. Now, We've obviously spoken at length on this podcast previously about the original Battle of the Bridge. Was there enough kind of fire in this one to give it Battle of the Bridge Part 2 standing, or or does it not quite rise to that sort of level for you? I think it's definitely of the level of Battle of the Bridge Part 2. We had two red cards for each of the two managers, which is like a rare thing to happen. We had like a constant bubbling, simmering tension throughout. We had uh, violence between the players. We had a 96-minute goal. I mean, and of course, we had the same scoreline to all. Like, I, I mean, if this isn't a battle of the bridge, I don't know I don't know what else could be. So, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. It was uh, a pretty good game and incredible entertainment. Jack, I, I, was, I was trying to analyse and break down the game and, and everything seemed to be kind of focusing towards what happened at the end. But if we look at the first half, did, did that first half do something maybe to, to curb expectations for Tottenham this season? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think a lot of people went into this game, me included, thinking this, this is going to be a different Tottenham. It's going to be a different Chelsea versus Spurs game. You know, this is the strongest Spurs team we've seen before. And I watched the first half and I thought, hold on a second, I've seen this game a million times before. Right. This is just the Chelsea versus Tottenham game that happens every season. <laughs> Chelsea was so much, they were cleverer than Spurs, they were stronger, they were fitter, they, I thought they kind of outmaneuvered Tottenham tactically, Tottenham couldn't really get out of their own half, uh, it looked like they had no real options beyond just hoofing the ball over the top, setting you on to chase after, uh, it was incredibly one-sided, um, and then of course, like, you know, Chelsea didn't really get the outcome they deserved, like, they should have won the game, but in fact, you know, because of circumstances, Tottenham managed to get a point. But I definitely think that if you look at the performance levels from the two teams, they that would have maybe kind of dampened some of the expectations beforehand that maybe this year Tottenham, you know, Tottenham would be much stronger than Chelsea. Jack, just I suppose in, in simple terms, how how did Tuchel manage to to stifle Tottenham so effectively? Because we didn't see any of the things. We saw towards the end of last season, or, or we saw rare glimpses where Kane would drop off, have have time to turn. He was able to pick one pass to Son, I remember, in the second half. But generally, Chelsea seemed to be able to stifle that. Yeah, I mean, watching Chelsea, they reminded me of uh, the Chelsea team that won the Champions League in Tuchel's first half season before... Mm before Lukaku arrived last year and forced them to change how they played. Like they were so they were they were so flexible. Like they played a kind of hybrid back four, back five system. They were so well organized that like there was no space in between the lines for Tottenham to play. They were aggressive in the sense they were played high up the pitch. And every time that Son or Kane would get the ball, uh, James or Kulabali would just jump in and nick the ball from them. 
Uh, and they were really fluid in their movement up front. You know, they didn't play a proper number nine. They had Havertz and Sterling up there, whose movement was really good and moved Tottenham around all day. So in that sense, it just felt like the kind of classic Thomas Tuchel Chelsea in a way which they didn't really look like last year where they just had Lukaku, when they were hitting long balls to Lukaku. So with that in mind, Jack, I mean, you were talking about, you know, Tottenham and maybe if they're, if this was a sign that expectations might have been a little bit higher than what we thought coming into the season, can the same be said of Chelsea only in the opposite way? Are they maybe, because you know, the narrative around them seemed to be fairly negative entering the season, missed out on some of their reported targets coming off of a, a disappointing year a year ago. Uh, could they actually be better than what was expected coming into this year? On that evidence, definitely. Like I was quite, you know, I was part of that narrative too. Like I thought that, Chelsea would have a difficult season this year because they don't have enough goals in the team, I think. Uh, they lost some very important players. I think there's always going to be question marks when you get a change of ownership about, you know, what will the will the new owners be smart? Will they have money? Will they get on with the new manager? Like, I, it remains to be seen what the relationship will be like between the new ownership group and Thomas Tuchel. But on this evidence, they're still a really, really good team. And to be honest, a better team than a lot of people, including me, gave them credit for. So if they can continue to play like they did in the first hour of this game through the rest of the season, then I think they will be a much bigger force this season than many of us thought. Jack, I feel like we spent a lot of the springtime and certainly Tottenham supporters seem to trying to assess the mood of Antonio Conte. I mean, what we saw at the weekend was such a, you know, a far cry from the upset, befuddled and, you know, marginalized figure we saw after the, the defeat away at Burnley, I think in February or March. So, so where is, where is the, the Conte experiment right now? I mean, in, in terms of his long-term commitment, in, in terms of, of where this team is going? Well, he is, I think he is a lot happier than he was last year. He's got a lot of what he wanted. He's got some very good players in the transfer window. I think Spurs are set up to have a pretty good season. You know, th this is the only season left on the contract that he signed last November. Mm. So I'm sure that as we as the season rolls on, the story will become, is he going to sign a new contract for Spurs? Obviously, Daniel Levy would love him to stay. I, at the moment, I, I think it's, I would, if I had to guess, I'd say it's likelier that, that, that he will sign than that he will not sign. At the same time, what we know from last season is that Conte is not averse to threatening to walk. You know, right. he spent a lot of last season threatening to walk. And I would expect him to exert the same pressure on the Tottenham board this season and say, oh, you know, maybe I could sign, but yeah, I'm only going to sign if, if I feel like I can win something, if I feel like I'm backed, and if we agree on things. So I'm, I'm sure that, that that kind of, and I know Spurs fans don't like this, but that constant speculation about whether he'll go and whether he'll sign or will he just walk away. And I, I know Spurs fans didn't enjoy it, but that was a big feature of the second half of last season. I imagine it will be a big feature this season too. Jack, one other Tottenham question that I had for you. Um, listening to you on the View from the Lane podcast this week, you spent a fair amount of time talking about Christian Romero, who was such a fascinating figure in this game. And he's a brilliant player, but he sort of, I guess it's what makes him great, but he just lives on that edge of good housery and bad housery, that edge of, of a red card. What is the line? What is the good version of that sort of player? What is the bad? Is there a line? This is the great question about Christian Romero, isn't it? It's, uh, is, he, is he reckless 
or is he just a violent genius who is so clever in what he does that somehow it isn't reckless? I mean, I think he could have got sent off in both the Tottenham games so far this year. There was attack on Oriol Romeo in the first game, which I thought could have been a red card. Pulling Marco Corella's hair was definitely could have been a red card. Mm-hmm. And yet he keeps getting away with it. I think the line, the line is really set by the referees more than anything else. And I I fear that Romero will get a reputation and referees will want to send him off and they will send him off. And then all of a sudden, people who at the moment so far have been saying, oh, he's brilliant, isn't he, the way he plays on the line. As soon as he gets himself sent off, people will be like, oh, what an idiot, Romero. You're out for three games. You've got to play Davinson Sanchez. You cost Tottenham the title. So it's... Uh, but, you know, football analysis being what it is, nobody will say that until the point at which he sends off and then everyone will change their minds. Um, so it's really, ultimately, I think, down to the referees and down to... Do, do any of them are any of them currently feeling he's not that this bloke isn't going to get away with it on my watch next week? I'm going to be the man. I'm going to be the, the man brave enough to send off the great Cristiano Romero, uh, which I, I I fear is something that will happen soon. But let's wait and see. Jack, just on the referees, there. Um, this, this game was was interesting for for a few points. I guess the use or non-use of VAR in a crucial decision. Um, involving Cucurella and Romero, and but also a general kind of, you know, let it go, let it flow, let everything, let everything happen. Um, that we seem to see introduced last year, and you know, everybody's talking this this year about this high bar in terms of of using VAR. Is refereeing in a crisis? And and um, are are the guys who signed the petition to have Anthony Taylor uh, banned from refereeing have have they got a point? Um, and the easiest. Bit of that to answer is no. The guys who set up a petition against Anthony Taylor are idiots, uh, yeah. just as are the fans who say that Paul Tierney shouldn't be allowed to referee Liverpool games. Uh, yeah. I find the obsession with individual referees to be bizarre. I can't believe that people think this is an interesting thing to talk about, and yet here we are. Uh, in terms of VAR, well, I, I'm actually I actually support the the direction VAR has gone in, which is to set. VAR is now basically something which does not try to re-referee the game, but only tries to correct very bad mistakes from the referee. Clearly, that means it corrects fewer mistakes, but I think it I think it does give it, it does return some authority to the on-field referee. So I think that's broadly a good thing. Um, let it flow, I think, is harder to judge. Like clearly, this is a huge, a big talking point. I think I think this really dates back to I think the Euros last summer. A lot of stuff was allowed to go, and I think there's yeah. a bit of an attitude in English football, which is that we can't have we can't have European football allowing more physicality and masculinity than English football, can we? Mm. So, so all of a sudden, like English football decides that it has to be a bit more liberal on this kind of stuff than uh, than Europe. And is it a good or a bad thing? I mean. You do want to see a fast-paced game, and you don't want to see a lot of stoppages. Obviously, at the same time, you want to see a lot of technical skill. And English football, in the last, you know, the, one of the big stories of English football in the last thirty years has been the conditions coming, the conditions being introduced to allow technical skill to, to flourish. And that's why, you know, David Silva, Kevin De Bruyne, Philippe Coutinho, etc. Lots of great, you know, technical players have come to play in England who wouldn't have played it or their equivalents wouldn't have played in England 30 years ago. Um, 
So no, I, I mean, I suppose what I want to see is what everyone wants to see, which is a hybrid. Like I, I want, I, I want it both ways. Like I want to see good technical play. I also want to see fast-paced football with tackles flying in. I'm, I fear, I mean, uh, I don't know if you listen to uh, Second Captain's podcast, but this is a point Ken Early often makes a lot, is that you can't have you can't have it both ways. Like, if we try and have the sort of fast-paced, aggressive men's football, as Graham Sunez might call it, then eventually some of these good players are going to get injured and then you won't have the same level of football. But I think, you know, I would rather try and have our cake and eat it, to be honest, like a lot of people. So, so you're not subscribing to, to Graham Sooners that we, we suddenly rolled back the years and got our football back? We've got our football back. Uh, no, I, I don't. I think Graham Sooners being, I don't fully buy the critique of Sooners. Um, yeah. But I also think, I, don't, I think he chose his words poorly, repeatedly. And I think he was probably also wrong in the sense that when he says, we, you know, we've got our football back. I mean, what we saw the other day was just, it just isn't a return to the football of the early 1980s. Like it just, it obviously isn't. Just look at, look at the technical skill, look at the speed, look how often the ball's in play, look at the way the players pass. Like it's just, it just isn't a return to the football of 40 years ago. And, you know, even simply having Conte and Tuchel squaring up to each other in the technical area doesn't make that so. Um, so I don't think he's right, and I don't think anybody seriously wants to return to football in the 1980s, which was, you know, objectively worse than the football of the 2020s in many, in, you know, in many obvious ways. Um, so yeah, I think um, I think Sunes was 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 wrong on. I think he was wrong both analytically and also wrong in his uh, choice of words. Let's see, Jack, a couple other quick ones before we let you go. Um, without Klopp's Liverpool, this era of the Premier League would have been different and quite frankly very boring at the top I know it's early we're trying to guard against big proclamations after just two weeks of the season but with these two draws to start out any reason for concern that Liverpool might not be up for the sort of fight this season therefore essentially leaving us with a one-horse race to the finish Mm, I don't know I mean I thought Liverpool I mean I thought last night's game was really good like it's an entertaining game I thought Liverpool played really well off the red card Um, I just fear that you know City don't the bar is City and Liverpool have set the bar so high in terms of how close to perfect you need to be to win the league. The fact that Liverpool have twice got into the 90s of points and not won the title is crazy. If you look at the history of English football, to be that good and not win the league. And I just think that, I don't know, how many points would you expect City to get this year? 90 plus? It'd be a surprise if they didn't hit 90, simply simply based on the precedent of the last five seasons. Uh, and if you know, and I'm not saying Liverpool, I think Liverpool are really good, but and I don't actually think, but I just think that having dropped four points already, it's obviously much harder. For, it basically leaves them no margin for error. They're going to have to win. They've got 36 games left. How many of them are they going to have to win? 32, 31? It's crazy. Yeah, it is. It really is. Um, just while we're flying through them, uh, Jack, um, Manchester United, Ah. Uh... They're, I mean, their decline, I, I didn't think they were good even when they finished second two seasons ago. Uh, I, I, th- I thought they were poor and they were aided by the fact that Liverpool went into a slump. But this, what we saw at the weekend, I mean, I know it's, it's two games in, but how does Ten Hag rescue this? I, I've got no idea. I've got no idea how Ten Hag can turn this around. I think they, I mean, I think for a start, they should get rid of Cristiano Ronaldo, who I think is... 
his presence is just deeply unhelpful to the whole football club, regardless of how many goals he may or may not score. Um, I think that I just feel like the whole, everything that makes a good football team good has just been kind of sucked out of Manchester United's kind of sapped away from Manchester United in the last few years. Like, in a sense, like Brent, Brighton and Brentford were the worst possible teams for them to play because Brighton and Brentford's football clubs are so, they're so streamlined, they're so efficient, they're so strategic, they've got a plan, they recruit to that plan, the coach is completely on board with the board and the fans and the players are all pulling in the same direction. And so even though, you know, on a, in a scale sense and in terms of financial power, they're much smaller than Manchester United, they're also like everything that Manchester United are not and they've proven that. That's been proven in both Premier League games so far this season, where Brighton and Brentford have taken United apart. How on earth Man United get back there? I mean, how on earth do you kind of you kind of reassemble the broken shard, the shards of broken egg eggshell, which are Manchester United at the moment? I've just got no idea. Like I always thought they should have appointed Mauricio Pochettino because I think he's. I just think he's got a kind of bigger personality, charismatic presence than Ten Hag. He's worked in England before. But he, even Pochettino, who I, I think is a genius, could he really have fixed Man United at the moment? Maybe not. Yeah, Jack, you tweeted, I think it was you anyway, tweeted that there was a, a point, a crossroads, where both were available and United had just decided, no, we're, we're going to hitch our wagon to Ten Hag. Yeah, I mean, look, I think... I'm sure if they if they really wanted Pochettino, they could have got him. It was always been sat by PSG. My impression is that United didn't really have the stomach to negotiate with with PSG for Pochettino's release. I think they were a bit scared off by United fans on social media deciding they preferred Ten Hag. You know, it's obviously the it's the right of fans to prefer whoever they want, but I think it's bizarre that a board will take, you know, will follow that in terms of their in terms of their pursuit of, of the correct character for the job. Um, and I just think Pochettino would have, I think Pochettino would have really relished the challenge and the romance of restoring United to their former glories. Um, and I'm not saying Ten Hag, I'm not saying Ten Hag doesn't, but I think Ten Hag, I think Ten Hag is a very, very good coach within a clearly defined structure, which is what he had at Ajax. Mm. I don't think he is necessarily like a big charismatic guy who necessarily thrives with the expectations of 75,000 people on his back and millions of fans around the world. And I, I just feel, I just feel like that is what Pochettino is and it's not what Ten Hag is. And of course it's easy for me to say now because the Ten Hag theory is being tested in reality and the Pochettino, Pochettino is not being tested by reality because he's, you know, on the beach somewhere. But that, I just have this kind of gut level sense that Pochettino would have been better. Uh, Jack, one more from me. Arsenal. Um, yeah, I think about the way their season is starting this year versus last year. Last year, they were probably never, they were obviously never as bad as we thought they were after those three straight games to begin the season. What about this year? Could they be as good as they've appeared after these first two wins? I don't see why not. Like, I thought they were, obviously, their season ended in a really bad way last season, which made people think that. It was it was a big disappointment, but given given the first given the previous two years when they came eighth, like last year was a big achievement. It was a big step in the right direction, their best points total in ages. And now I think they've added like 
I mean, Gabriel Jesus is a, a transformational signing. I think he's been, he's already proven how good he's going to be. I think Zinchenko is a great player as well. So I look. I, I don't. I'm, do I think they're going to be as good as City? No, obviously not. But I think they've got a given how close they came to fourth last year and given how they will obviously be better this year, there's no reason they can't be in and around third and fourth this season. I mean, look, I, I, I don't really know how Liverpool, Tottenham and Chelsea are going to shake out, but I think it's certainly plausible that Arsenal can get top four. Jack, I was going to ask you about Lampard and Gerrard surviving in the same league together, uh, but I think we'll park that one for now. <laughs> Uh, I, uh, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen there. I feel like I don't really have much of a read on how good those teams are. I think both of them, there's a huge variance in terms of, I think, you know, maybe sometimes you watch Villa and you think, oh, wow, these guys are good. They can be like seven. And sometimes you watch it, it's just a complete disaster. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to, I think like ultimately, I think they'll both stay up. Yeah, the weekend's game was not good. It was, it was one of those that reminded you however much hype there is around this league. There are still games that will utterly bore you, and that was one of them. Yeah, completely. I also think, to be fair, the the, the weather probably didn't help because those are two, two. I mean, certainly Everton and probably also Villa. They need to be playing at two hundred miles an hour to be any good, and yeah. if it's difficult to do when it's thirty six degrees outside. Um, so may, maybe that didn't help them. But yeah, I uh, I don't know how watchable either of those teams will be this year. Well, good stuff, Jack. You can read them, of course, at The Athletic. Hear them on the View from the Lane podcast, also on Twitter, at Jack Pittbrook. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Our thanks to Jack Pittbrook. Enjoyed that. Uh, enjoyed that very much. He's great. Uh, last bit for me, we were talking there earlier and with him about Christian Romero. You know what watching him makes me think of? Uh, when Mourinho came to Spurs and he had his first few training sessions, do you remember the thing that he would say about them? He'd say, "This we're too nice. Too nice, yeah. We're too nice. And in the, in the documentary, I think he said we need to be... It wasn't it eh, eh? Something. Eh, something? Yeah, but like, <laughs> whatever it was, it was... His point was that they're too nice. And, and they were. Like, in the moment, I was like, well, I mean, Lamella is kind of that guy. But like, looking back on it now, he didn't play enough to really have that kind of impact. And no. I'd sometimes, well, I think Dyer has that in him, but... Not all the time. Sometimes he's too nice too. Hoiberg has it in him. I think he has it in him. But I think I think Romero is a Mourinho player. Like I yeah. think that's that's who Jose Mourinho is talking about when he's talking about we need to be that kind of of mean. That's what he's that's what he's referring to. Rafa, like Rafa Nadal had an uncle, um, who I can't remember his first name, but they just called him Nadal, <laughs> and he was the butcher, and he played alongside Fernando Hierro and. They were just a hard man <laughs> in a time when you could be, the tackles were crazy. But they never really, or I don't remember them going into the kind of, the stuff that Romero does, the more pantomime villainy stuff. They were just hard. And that's why I was saying to you earlier, I think you can be that that really tough defender without taking on some of the other characteristics. But well, He's still young. He'll, he'll figure all he, that out. Yeah, he will, with a couple of suspensions. He'll <laughs> learn the hard way, most yeah. likely. Let's get into some of the other stuff. We talked to Jack about some of it, but we obviously want to give our thoughts as well. We'll start um, with Manchester United. Um, like you said, I mean, you referred to it as their lowest point since, what do you say, 1989? Uh, since Probably since 89, the 5-0 against City but that's worse because City were well City were weren't good then either um and 
the relegation goals the relegation st- in the early 70s stands alone obviously I don't think that's comparable but um, yeah four goals in 45 minutes 35 and, sorry 35 minutes just stunningly bad I do think the manager has to take some blame in the way he set up the side. Like, if you take out Scott McTominay, you leave Fred in, you're asking Christian Eriksen, who I don't think has it in him, to do that deeper-lying role. I guess not. I'll take the L there. Because, I mean, I had said, no, but I talking about Eriksen no, a couple weeks ago, I that never, I think he can... I've seen him be versatile in all the midfield roles. I never thought, from what you were saying, I never deduced that you meant he was going to be like a screening... Well, no, he's not... He's not Does, Fernandinho. No. <laughs> um. I didn't think so either. But but you know what? It's funny when you're a team that's low on confidence, and you're a team that's in a you know a real tough spot. How it's like dominoes. If one thing goes wrong, everything goes wrong. So the first goal, you know, it's like Ronaldo gets pressed. And he falls over. I am slain. And he stays on the ground, you know. But, like, Brentford straight away knew these guys are soft. <laughs> you know, they, we can press them. We can win the ball back. And they win it back. And, and De Gea obviously should save that. Like, it's... There's no excuses, but if I was given one, maybe... uh uh-uh, okay. don't. There's no excuses. Don't. There's no excuses for it. So that goes wrong. And the next thing you know, De Gea makes the ridiculous decision... Like, he can see the whole field. Don't play that pass into Christian Eriksen. Insanity. It's crazy. And he does it, and then it's 2-0, and then it's all over. Like, it's like the domino of everything is just collapsed, a house of cards. And I'm not saying that, oh, well, if those goals hadn't gone in, United would have been much better. Clearly, they're not that good of a team. It still would have been a slog. And by the way, Liverpool found Brentford away a tough slog at exactly the same uh, point last season so we should give Brentford some credit for for having their homework done but United were willing accomplices in this in this absolute catastrophe there's a there's a lot to be worried about with United oh my god and, and you know over the coming weeks I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll get to what many of those things are but I'm glad you mentioned De Gea because when you when you're in a situation like United is in there's enough there to be worried about in terms of getting the attack going and setting up a defense and you know trying to figure out how Ten Hag wants to set up his midfield. You don't need your quote-unquote reliable keeper just handing goals away. He was bad the first week of the season. And then I'm glad that you mentioned – I mean, look, the first one speaks for itself. There's, we don't need to say anything about it. It was, it was horrifying. The second one, though, like I feel like people will look at that and say, what is Erickson doing? No! <laughs> no! Why? Why is he getting the ball there? I'm glad Lee Dixon called it out straight away on the broadcast. He says, what is De Gea doing playing him that ball? He can see everything. So you can see the guy is under severe pressure and has to turn really sharply. Even just, But he had, I think he had Maguire to his right and a square ball. And Maguire then would have at least time to kick it up the field or to play a different pass. And look, maybe Ten Hag wants to play a certain way. But, uh, but like there is also the other option of just kicking the hell out of the ball. But I've, I think we've always said this on the podcast. Like... You play out when it's on, but if you can clearly see there's a guy under like tremendous pressure, don't do it. De Gea, De Gea, was it last week I said on the podcast, I felt like he came in at the juncture. He is just in the last generation of goalkeepers where you didn't have to be that good with your feet. And he's just not up to it to, to play like this. And yeah. Ten, Ten Hag is going to have to review that somehow. Even the, even the third goal, like, okay, 
the corner. Maybe he couldn't get to it, but he's he's now run to one side of the net. It's played all the way back to the other side to Ben Me, this kind of floating header, and he's he's it feels like Stranded. he's kind of in yeah, it just so there's that element of it, but then it's also what he said. Um afterwards, he uh he was asked whether last season was still playing on the minds of some players, and he replied, I'm reading this from The Athletic, he replied, of course, it's been difficult and it's probably still in our minds. When something goes wrong, people get panicky. It's difficult. Like, that mentality would frighten me if I was a United supporter, but more so if I was Ten Hag. Because now you, you start to think about that, okay, like, it's enough of a job to come in here and try to, like, be the manager of a, of a team. Yeah. Um, it's another thing to like have players who are still spooked by things that happened well before you ever arrived and now trying to like work that out of them and, and you know there's there's talk about the board basically telling him during preseason play down expectations play down expectations uh, cuz they know they know what's going on but he walked into that room and he did the opposite because he saw players that were so low on confidence that needed to be built back up that would scare me with that, United that's this season. terrifying it's also, um, you know, the the optics that came out then in directly after it. So they were supposed to have, what was it, Monday off. And the whole team were called in to run 13.8 kilometers, which was the, the difference between them and the effort that Brentford put in. I kind of like that. But what, what does that say? They're, I mean... They're not... Like, this is a manager whose game is... All about move, movement and running. But he can't go soft on that. No, he can't. But the point being is that they're already not doing... He can't go soft on them. He can't get them to do what he needs them to do. Yet. It's been two games. Oh, my God. Oh, Andrew, it's We been, don't judge managers after two games, JJ. It's been 100 days? More, more, <laughs> but over 100 days? I mean, but they've played two Premier League games. They all talked about how they're... Because they had a promising preseason. Look, how can you but do... That's how not, can you do any of the running if you've got Ronaldo on the side? That's... that. That's impossible. Yeah, he's, impossible. He's the next one that you've got on your list of things that would concern you. Well, there's a lot. I mean, they've got the rumor today was they're they're much more willing to just get rid of this, finish this, it's over, release him from his contract in whatever way that they can, and let him roam free, <laughs> free with his with his uh, rucksack on his back and a sign saying Champions League, anyone? <laughs> uh, but it can't go on like this. And they need to make some signings. So I saw this tweet uh, from Johnny Sharples, who is a he's a funny follow. Uh, it's entitled "The Next Two Weeks of Manchester United's Transfer Window," N- none of which is uh, probably true. Well, actually, the Adrian Rabiot deal is off. Yeah. So uh, he has a screenshot: Fabrizio Romano, uh, Adrian Rabiot, uh, Adrian Rabiot has turned down Manchester United. Deal completely off. Rabiot will stay at Juventus. Next one. Manchester United have had an offer for Tottenham Hotspur midfielder Harry Winks turned down. This is all made up. This has to be made up, right? They're saying it's from the Athletic. <laughs> the next one. Watford have rejected an offer for Manchester United to take midfielder Tom Cleverley on a season-long loan. And then the final one. Fabian Delph is a red official Manchester <laughs> United account. <laughs> but it, I mean, if lo- does lower expectations mean... You better lower your expectations too in terms of the players that are going to maybe. come in. That's maybe terrifying. But, but it's not for lack of effort. They've they've been trying to get Frankie De Jong. I mean, they have a deal in principle done with Barcelona. He just doesn't want to go there. What if Chelsea come in and gazump them for that? 
Like that's that's looking likely. Oh my god. Yeah, that's This is rough. this is truly horrifying. I uh I didn't see this. I didn't think they'd be great. I I thought it would take time. I thought they'd be much better. They are way worse. Way worse than they were last season. And Ten Hag is under the most inordinate amount of pressure already. (laughs) What did you say last (laughs) week? You were like, calm down. It's a 2-1 win. Not like it was (laughs) 4-0. Like Nostra Andy. I know. Look, I'm sure a lot of people were curious how I would respond to this. uh, To your proclamation that he's... He was your manager under the hot seat because I knew the season started. It would get hot because I hate to do this, but it's Manchester United Football Club. <laughs> I can't help like I I saw your tweet over the weekend on the on the show account, not even from your own personal uh, account. Uh, it said something what to the effect of th- that seat is getting mighty hot, and like I don't think I, he should be fired. By the way, I, I of course I, he shouldn't be. I don't, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> And, like, I just can't help – like, I, I saw that tweet, and obviously we're in a different headspace because this is now a thing on this podcast. That <laughs> we've, we've, you have placed him on this hot seat. And, like, I still look at that tweet and I think, like, okay, within the show community, this is a thing. But, like, people who don't know the show – yeah, we got tweet. a reply from someone who didn't seem to know the show. Although right, they, like, they then claimed as if he did know the show. I don't mean, because, what we were talking because about. somebody outside of the show community seeing us proclaiming this guy is on the hot seat after two matches are going to think that we're effing bonkers. It He's not. He's just not. We'll see how this plays out. To me, like, I don't. I don't see maybe that a narrative will build in a certain direction around him, but like I don't see many people right now blaming him for what's gone wrong here. I think people are saying that he's inherited something that is probably much more of an undertaking than anyone really uh, even realized. Yeah. And and does he have the support staff to to really fix things? That's the other thing as well. Question mm-hmm. How many pints would Richard Arnold need to buy oh this my God. time? Oh, they are, uh, yeah, they are. So there was assembling the, outside of his house as we speak. So there was there was optics outside of you know the running stats that weren't very good. You know where some, I remember someone who was at the game, at the Brentford game, a United supporter in the away end tweeting, he only saw seven first team members, out of a travelling party of what twenty plus, come over and say anything to the fans. Now, they got a fair amount of abuse, but they did they did come over and, and acknowledge the fans. It's, it must be 15 years ago that Niall Quinn, when he was chairman of Sunderland, Sunderland went away, and they, like, somewhere very far away in England for an away game, and they got hammered, really poor performance. And he paid for all the away supporters their travel back wow yeah I I think uh, I I do not think that gesture would have been out of place at the weekend for the travel think of how support. much more these players are making now think how much United can afford it yeah <laughs> put it that way huh travel is pricey that, from they, Manchester to Brentford <laughs> they can afford it Manchester to Brentford in a mini recession or at least with the cost of living crisis I think Richard Arnold should forget the pints and should have put some money back in those uh, supporters' pockets. 
Let's uh, continue now, JJ. Arsenal, they begin their season with two impressive performances. Um, first thing I want to talk about Swatting aside, Leicester. Yeah. I mean, it got interesting. It did, but Arsenal it got interesting. looked really good. They certainly do. Gabriel Jesus. I mean, what a... What an absolute success this has been. And I hate that this is going to, people are going to use this to dunk on a brilliant reporter in Tim Vickery because Tim said, Tim's inside knowledge was, Chiche has spoken to him before about where he'd like to play and he said wide. And now he's playing more centrally for Arsenal and scoring goals. Tim was just making a point, an educated point based on knowledge. It's not a reason for people to say, well, what were you talking about? Look at him now. No, he was reporting what a manager told him. Yes. He didn't make that up. It wasn't an opinion. It was a report. Yeah. No, whatever. Um, but he's been handed the reins here. Like, this was not really a thing. There were spurts at Manchester City where, whether it be through an Aguero injury or whatnot, that he would be, he'd have a run of games. But it always felt like, you know, a stint back on the bench was always just right around the corner for him. Yeah. That's just the way it was. Here you go. Like, this is now your chance to be one of the elite strikers in this league and to say that he's taken the opportunity and run with it, it would be a gross understatement. So Planet Football uh, laid out a bunch of his early season achievements. It's only two games, but still. He's got four goal involvements, most in the league. Uh, he's already scored as many goals in the league from open play as Lacazette did all of last season, which I couldn't believe. Uh, he's completed nine take-ons, more than any other player in the Premier League. And how about this one, JJ? On Saturday against Leicester, he had 15 touches in the box, more than any Arsenal player over the last seven seasons. Ooh. Over the last seven seasons. This guy, he had two goals and two assists. Could have had four goals uh, in this game. I mean, So I only saw highlights of this one, um, but he did one thing directly from a, a goal kick from Ramsdale, where he just holds off Johnny Evans and spun him spun him just brilliant and like it really did deserve a goal it, it did I kind of enjoyed that one more than some of the goals that he did score yeah no but it was classic kind of skillful centre forward play and determination and strength and not things we necessarily associate with Gabriel Jesus from yeah. his time at Manchester City and you know for him I think the moment that I point to like we're talking about United and what lack of confidence looks like, like David De Gea, mistakes like that. That's what you know. De Gea is obviously a good enough keeper to stop that shot. He has no confidence. He said it afterwards that this team is panicking because they're thinking about last season. Meanwhile, on the other side, you look at a guy like Jesus. You know what maximum confidence looks like? That first goal, where you're kind of in a position, you're not really in a position to shoot, and he's just like, you know what? I'm the man right now. I'm gonna just chip this over everyone, and he perfectly executes it perfectly. Like to, to be willing to try that, you've got to be playing with maximum confidence. He's there right now. It's fun to watch. They they look very, very good. Now, I will say that is a nice start to the season. Uh, Palace away. Actually, Palace away could have been really tricky. They negotiated that well. Leicester at home. Leicester are... Leicester have problems. Um, they do not seem to be uh, going very well. And so I, maybe it was to have Leicester at home, that's a, that's a good fixture for Arsenal to have, but... You can't complain so far with, no. the, with the acquisitions, with the way they've you know, settled in. There's one other part of it that I wanted to mention, too. I um, So I went, as you sometimes do, I went to Ars blog Great to blog. see some of what they were saying. And you know, he had, a, he had an interesting story up about, okay, if things are going well, um, but like you can always hope for more. You can always see certain things that you want to see improve. And in the story, they point out that, like, there's a worry that maybe they're a little imbalanced right now because of um, how good Zinchenko has been right. on the left. 
that you know that side him linking up with Martinelli uh, that right now there's an imbalance on the right side you're just not seeing that from whoever's playing on that right side of fullback whether it be Ben White or Tomiyasu Odegaard um, and Bukayo Saka and he basically says like um, the, the quote here in the story he makes a good point in saying for me it's encouraging that we've won both our games so well while knowing that players like Odegaard and Saka are capable of much more than we've seen in both those 90 minutes. That's encouraging, because those are two linchpin players for Arsenal. He is. I wonder about making Odegaard the captain. Now, go through it. Who else was going to be? Some of those guys aren't at the club that long. Some of them are, and you don't really want to give them the captaincy. I'm looking at you, Granit Xhaka. He just struck me as an odd choice for captain. And I wonder, is that kind I of mean, who would who would be the other candidates? Ramsdale. Um, I mean Ramsdale. Uh, I see. I always think of the captain as a centre back. Maybe a goalkeeper. Although I'm not sure about goalkeeping captains. Can either. we? I wonder if if a, either we can do this homework assignment or if a listener wants to do it. Um, I'd be curious for the actual breakdown of which position is most prominent in captaincy because you're right I think center back probably I always think of a a center midfielder defensive center midfielder broad chested center back or center midfielder and when I saw Martin Odegaard I thought is this you know because Odegaard you have to think of like the trajectory of his career this guy was being talked about since since he was 12-13 years of age and he was this phenom coming all the way through and Arsenal has been the place that he seemed to have settled at but we all expect him to settle more, to be even better for them. And do you really want to lump the captaincy responsibility on top of him as well? I don't yeah, know. I Ma- mean, maybe. Maybe. Arteta sees him day to day. Maybe there's leadership skills yeah. um, in there, but I, I guess we'll see. It's only game two. Um, while we're here, all or nothing. My my early impressions. I feel bad doing this because a lot of you out there listening are further along than I am. Well, so uh, the first block of three I watched, and then I haven't seen it since the second block of. Okay. So my initial thoughts, first off, I should just put this out there, simply stated, I'm always going to like this stuff. I just enjoy this kind of access. Like, I just enjoy, like, we don't know any of these players. We think we do. We watch them play, and, like, for 90 minutes, we feel like we get a sense of who they are. We don't know S about them. So I just enjoy, like, all these guys that I think I know, like, really getting to know them in some kind of way. Like Aaron Ramsdale, the stuff with his parents in the yeah. first episode. You know, watching the, you could feel his dad's nerves watching him start his first game for Arsenal. Um, that was fun. You know, Bukayo Saka talking about everything that happened after he missed the penalty for England. And then, like, Josh Kroenke shows up and says, remember the text message I sent you? You know, don't listen to those people. But, like, Mikel Arteta comes I over. I didn't like Kroenke doing that because Kroenke's lying. Whatever that text message said, Kroenke's line was, shake that S off. I'm like, that is too throwaway for what's just happened. I don't happened. know if there was more in the message than that. That might have been the, the general Well, that's point. what he I'm, said to him. I'm guessing, yeah, that's what he said was in his message. But there was probably, I don't know, yeah. whatever. I don't okay. care about Josh Kroenke. No. But like Arteta then coming Incredibly over. Incredibly straight beard. Incredibly straight. Handsome guy. I don't know if, oh, what is I he? think. Yeah, he's a handsome guy. He looks like a 17th century. You wouldn't trade places with him right now. Come on. You, you're a goblin over there. <laughs> Dare you? Just because of um, my oozing knee. But the one thing that I um, 
but like then Arteta came over after Kroenke said that and was like joked about it with with Saka, which I thought was cool. When he's like he gets cheered in every stadium now. Like I, I thought Arteta came off great. His speech about his heart condition when he was a kid. I mean, yeah, boy, he, I, he's, I I didn't enjoy the drawing. The drawing was a bit hokey. See, see, this is you. This is you versus me. By the way, I look for reasons to love. He has a lot of gimmicks in the opening three episodes. This man is. He's, he's got. John, he's like the the carrot top of managers. He's he, got a whole prop bag with him. He's Johnny Gimmicks. He had the drawing of the heart and the brain, and then the Arsenal fan holding the scarf. Then he pulls the cameraman up, who's been there for thirty years to give the pre-team uh, talk at one of the games, and then and then he's completely bungled the creating of the atmosphere of Anfield. <laughs> they don't play. You'll never walk alone for the first forty-five minutes. You, what you need is 45,000 Scousers screaming abuse. Play that for 45 minutes. <laughs> um, but one thing as this series progresses, like I said, I'm early on, so maybe you can shed more light on it. Uh, but the thing that I come into it m- most interested in finding out about, like I say, I want to know, I want to learn about these guys. I want to get to know them. Hmm. Um, Granite Jaka is the guy for me because I feel like him more than maybe more than any other player in the league, I feel like the way the fans perceive him versus the way the guys inside the room perceive him are so different. Yeah. Like, when he was named captain, everyone who pays even an ounce of attention to this league looked at that and said, what? Huh? <laughs> do you him? Want, do you want your captain to be in the stand? Red most card of the time? waiting to happen. What's, like, he's out of control. You know, we all had a certain image of him, but in that room, it's different. And so I like early on there's a couple interviews with him and he actually he does seem different than whatever my perceptions are and I hope I'd like to get to know him more as the series goes along. I'm I'm just curious about it. Yeah, me too. Um Ramsdale is interesting to me too. Uh Kieran Tierney in particular seems like the most grounded footballer of all. Um he, he just seems very very level-headed and completely unaffected by by the money or the fame, but I'm only three episodes in, so I got to pick yeah. up on the other ones. Uh, I, I enjoy. I just it's fine. enjoy the stuff. It's fine. It's fine. I would like. If you it, would like if this was see you. I you don't like it because it's 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 these are brands. Premier League on Amazon. You know you need a, a you want a documentary of a five aside team where the, no. the captain is a principal and the goalkeeper is a mailman right like that that is no. the heart of what you want here rather than you tell me what i want uh-huh. shall i tell you i would love if they weren't so heavily produced and that the access was complete and there were no more talking heads because what i find with the talking heads is they use arteta's words to frame to, to frame what's happening in front of you whereas i would like to like i would like to go uh, gonzo on it and let the camera run and whatever you get you get which is what happened with um, pretty much what happened with Graham Taylor's documentary in 93 which is the daddy of them all okay. in, in the failure to run for so you pick up everything and I, I'm not don't tell me what's happening show me and let me come to my own conclusion <laughs> pushes <laughs> glasses to the bridge of nose uh, I'll tell you what, let's take another break. We'll come back. A couple. Uh, I got a couple MLS thoughts. We got a few more Premier League things. JJ saw some things on the internet. I think there might even be a mailbag. 
There's a brief mailbag okay. and there's a things I saw on the internet because, look, it's the segment that's sweeping the... It's taken the world. I mean, if, if the early season form of Liverpool and Manchester United is not grabbing you, then this is the segment I will. And we'll, we'll get your thoughts on Liverpool in just a moment. More caught offside still to come. Oh, back again on Caught Offside. So a lot of things to get to. The football, it's so back. There's so much. It's impossible to cover it all. That is true. That is true. And some of the, the thoughts of the people that I see do reflect that. But we get to what we get to. I don't know, I don't know what, what to say. Uh, let's see. A couple MLS things that I just wanted to mention, JJ. Um, I saw this note from, uh, I mean, this, this league, it's, it does not lack in excitement. I will say that. Goals. Goals upon goals upon goals. This is from OptiJack. It's a goal fest. Uh, OptiJack tweeted this over the weekend. Seven. Seven games on Saturday featured at least five goals, the most on a single day in MLS history, breaking the record of six such games set last Saturday. Like, <laughs> this is every week now. These attacks, I don't know if it's just that, like, because money has poured into the league. I saw a statistic that I think in the last transfer window – um, MLS spent $250 million, which was, I think, eighth most of any league in the world, which mm. is a big deal for MLS to kind of – they're moving up the charts in terms of the money that is being spent to improve the quality of this league and, and the caliber of player. Maybe that money is being devoted primarily to attacking players, and you're starting to see a little bit of an imbalance between defense and attack. Possibly. Um, but just goals, fun games, four threes, four Five twos, multiple. Five, weren't both LA games five two? Yeah, uh, crazy stuff. Uh, one of those games that featured at least five goals was the Union and the Chicago Fire. I should probably apologize to the Chicago Fire. A week ago, I sat here and said, "Get on board, everyone. Oh, it's, you are things the, are different you're now. Such a mush. Things are different now. This isn't what they used to be. This team is figuring it out. They had a lot of new players. I mean, they're, the way, they're only three points off the playoffs. And I mean, if Inter Miami can be in seventh position in the in the conference standings, then surely Chicago can make but, that up. But that was the other thing I want to now talk about is Toronto FC. I'm fascinated by what is happening there. They're still outside of the playoff picture. They're four points back, but momentum is building, and it is happening very quickly. Unbeaten in their last four. They've scored 11 goals across those four games. Uh, ben Wright, MLSsoccer.com, has such good coverage of this league. They do, they do such a good job. And Ben Wright has a feature up on Insigne and Bernadeschi's impact on Toronto's recent success. He points out they've been involved in eight of the team's last 10 goals, whether it be assist or, uh, or scoring it directly. Um, and, you know, what's more, like, rightfully so, Insigne and Bernadeschi have gotten all the headlines in terms of players that have come in, and their impact has been immediate. And there's obviously a chemistry there, uh, and it's, it's changed the, the trajectory of this team season. But it isn't just them. Mark Anthony Kay just coming in. Daniil Henry just coming in. Richie Larea coming back in to this team. Uh, and, and Bob Bradley talked, pinpointed him specifically as to the impact that he's made. Like, they brought in two superstars, no question about that. But you know, this league is in a place now where that's not enough. Like, if the complementary pieces around superstars aren't up to par, the team will be okay. But what we're seeing from Toronto is not okay. They're excelling. I've said repeatedly over the last when 
these guys were first coming into the squad. Is there they're going to be good? But is there enough time left for them to make up the ground that they need to make up? Well, guess what? They've done it quickly. They're back in it. They're four points out, I think, with nine to play. And their next three games are all against teams that are that are just ahead of them in the playoff race. New England, Charlotte, Miami. We could be sitting here in a month, and they might be they might be firmly in the postseason picture. So uh, they are, they, they're fascinating to me what's happening there it's, with that club. It's fascinating to me as well, Bernardeschi's little pieces to camera after every victory where he's just walking with his top off, uh, speaking in either Italian or broken English at the camera. Just kind of, he, he seems amped to be there. And be playing regularly, yeah. and he's sure he's completely uh, contributing to the team. And they're team having as well. fun. They're they are. Yeah. They're not just winning, but like I said, they're a joy to watch right now. Uh, is what's more. So. One hundred percent. Yeah. Um, let's see a couple other things, JJ. We'll go back to to the prem for a moment. Just wanted to mention uh, another one of these games with a newly promoted side winning their first home game. Didn't think Nottingham Forest played that well, uh, but they they got their goal. Um, and then they had an act of God repeat basically over and over. Have you seen multiple off of the underside of a crossbar and out like you saw in this game? Have not seen it. Um, haven't seen anything like it, really. I thought one of them's bound to be over the line. Of course. The watch never went off. Declan Rice, they got their they got their penalty. I thought... Uh, I thought it could have been a red card for the Nottingham Forest defender McCarran, but it wasn't. I mean, they explained why. Yeah, because the keeper was right behind him. Right, so it's not. It wasn't necessarily a denial of a goal-scoring opportunity. It's, it's lucky, though, you know. Yeah. Um, and Declan Rice taking the penalty. Yeah. Why? They've got so many talented players on the field that are more, how shall I put it, goal attuned, and he takes it. It's poor. Henderson saves it. Guesses right. Still a good save. He made a couple of good saves. Henderson looked. Ex- Dean Henderson looked excellent. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, and even, you know, I don't think I heard Moyes complain about it, but the Mikel Antonio foul in the lead up to the goal that West Ham scored, mm, you can't yeah. extend your arms and just push into someone like that. Yeah, I thought, I didn't have a problem. I didn't that. have I a problem with it either. Um, but yeah, it was a lovely sunny day as as was at most games at the weekend and the, the city ground looked amazing. It absolutely looked amazing. And it was good to have them back, I must say. And their their jerseys are fire without a sponsor. <laughs> Absolute. Uh, Liverpool, JJ. 1-1. Yeah. Um, just get that feeling with them. If they don't score in the early onslaught, and Darwin Nunes, Mohamed Salah had chances, big chances. Nunes had two really good chances. And they didn't score. Would they have like seventeen shots in the first half? Yeah, I mean the XG was pretty much in their favor, and and Palace pounced on their one opportunity. Uh, Nat Phillips, who I didn't think I thought Joe Gomez should have started, but Nat Phillips gets caught out, and Virgil Van Dijk for some reason doesn't read the danger that if Zaha goes past him, he's in. Brilliant finish from Zaha, um, and then I thought. The red after the red card, I thought Liverpool were excellent. Like, Which is odd. The Diaz goal was just superb, and Liverpool fought so hard that I actually do agree with Klopp that it was a good. Po- it was a good point in the end. Don't forget, Zaha hit the outside of the post on a breakaway, but Liverpool went for the game with ten men, which I think is a good sign of any team. Um, but to be to give to drop that many points, four points already against a team like Manchester City in the bigger title race, is is not good. And you know which way it's going. Even if Liverpool pick it up and start winning games, you, there's no sign that City won't. I mean, their destruction of Bournemouth should should send shivers down your your spine. Even with, I mean, Haaland was an irrelevance. I know he got a, an assist in that game, but he only had eight touches for the game, 
and they still blow them out of the water. De Bruyne's goal was oh, sensational. But going back to Darwin Nunez, um, yeah. again, just the stupidity of it. He could have been sent off before that. Now, Anderson is jostling with him as every centre-back does with every tall centre-forward. This was all game. There's a, there's a great compilation of I've it. seen it, yeah. But right before, Andrew, Nunez is trying to throw his head into him. Yep. I'm sorry, he just is. And Anderson, when the ball breaks down, comes out and gives him the waggy finger and pushes him like, what the F are you doing, pal? And he turns around and headbutts him. Like, there's no making this up. You can call Ander, you know, Anderson at S-House, you can call him whatever you want, but the trying to make a villain out of him in this scenario when it was just naive stupidity from Darwin Nunez, I... I, I uh, and he says he's so been receiving. He says in the wake of this, he's been receiving death threats. The police have been involved. Yeah, now. I saw that in the Liverpool Echo today. Just I mean, what people are just a bunch of knobs. It's just so frustrating. Yeah. So frustrating. But um, look, I think a point. <laughs> the Crisis Club Derby, Liverpool versus Manchester United on Monday. Um, it, it, it's one of the crazy things about that game is, like, if United, I don't expect United to win, but like if they do. The way that the narrative could change, they will leap Liverpool by a point. <laughs> I mean, it's just like yeah. Look, I'm always nervous going into those games. Always, it doesn't matter. Even last season when we put nine past them over two games and they didn't score once. But um, the way Liverpool are playing, they should still be confident going into that that they can put in a performance. Now there's issues in midfield. Klopp talked about a witch coming over the club. They were missing so many players, and and they will have to figure. They'll have to tape together some kind of a striker, Andrew, for uh, for Monday's game. But look, two draws, not ideal, not ideal against that opposition. But I'm not, I'm not, I'm not losing my s over it. No, but it's it's not it's good. not good. Like we talked about with Jack. Good. Like this is, you know, we 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 view them as the. The competitor. Like, they're the contender that, yeah, that is, res- maybe that is it's unre- responsible for us having a title race in this league. You, s- you see 37, 38-year-old James Milner out there, and you're I like, know. God bless him. The relentlessness of the last few years, he's worn down to a nub. He's uh, forgotten to shave. A couple of Premier League injuries of note. Um, we were just talking about Diego Carlos. He's probably done for the season. A ruptured Achilles. Brutal. Um, um, we might as well hit this right now. Uh, we were keeping an eye on you. That was nothing short of hard to watch on uh, Saturday morning, the opening game of the Premier League weekend. <laughs> Just dire stuff. And uh, as we alluded to with Jack, there may be a possibility that Lampard and Jarrah cannot exist in the same English midfield and neither can either of them exist in the Premier League. That was that was bad. But now with this Diego Carlos injury, which is devastating, yeah. they now turn to Tyrone Mings. Back in the fold. Slighted unnecessarily by Gerrard, I thought. Um, stripped of the captaincy and then comments were made. Uh, you'd wonder about the way Gerrard's handled that, but now he's going to have to ride or die with... Uh, with Tyrone Mings, which is an amazing swing around, but yeah. that game was that game was brutal, and I wouldn't like to see Everton if they lose Anthony Gordon to Chelsea. Chelsea have made a renewed bid for him of forty-five million. I thought I saw that was rejected. It was rejected. Yeah, they'll go again. I'm sure. I'm not sure that well, they. That feels ne- like a lot of money. I'm not sure that they need Anthony Gordon per se. No, I uh, mean, I would keep Christian Pulisic and play him if that's the thing. Well, 
Let's talk about that. Oh, um, here we go. So there's rumors now of Newcastle showing interest in Pulisic. Um, shortly before we went on and started recording, I saw AC Milan and I think Inter Milan. Uh, rumors of them potentially on some sort of loan deal. Yeah. Um, I have. We've talked about this. Has now gone on for a, over a uh, probably about a year. Is this of, where you launch into an impassioned defense of Christian Pulisic? Well, not necessarily. Maybe I don't know. You'll judge at the end of this <laughs> whether it is or isn't. I was going to go grab a coffee. <laughs> go, go ahead. I'll, I'll speak to the people directly. Uh, I've wavered on this one over the last couple of years, but I think I'm now kind of. I, I think I've moved firmly to the side of wanting him to go. I, I do think that it's time, um, partially because of playing time. You know, I want him to go somewhere and, and get minutes, but also partially because even if he was playing week in, week out, like I don't know if we're going to ever get the best version of Pulisic playing in, in Tuchel's system. Um, and and like, I don't, I don't see, I already like hear Chelsea fans misinterpreting this. This is not necessarily a knock on Tuchel. He has a style. It's proven to be successful. He's won a friggin' Champions League with it. Mm. So who am I to sit here and say, Indeed. do it differently? Like, that's not necessarily what I'm saying. But I'm saying if, you're, if your interest is a player of that position, this may not be the club where you want him to be. Um, like, is it a coincidence that so many expensive, highly thought of attacking players have come through this club in recent years and have been considered disappointments? Were they all bad? Are they all bad? They can't all be bad. No. They can't all be bad. So one of the Twitter follows, JJ, that we really enjoy, MLS Buzz. Speak for yourself. Love the work that MLS Buzz does. Buzz. Did a, a deep dive on this one that I found interesting. Um, so I'll break it down quickly for you. But he kind of looks at the way that Liverpool's attackers were used last season and the way Chelsea's attackers were used last season. And I understand that Liverpool's numbers are going to be higher because of the way they play versus Chelsea. But the point is just to illuminate this, the idea that a top three club with high-profile attackers, like it can, it can be different than, than how Chelsea choose to okay. do it. So in just looking at it, a uh, number of times targeted with a pass per 90 minutes. All four of Liverpool's primary, primary attackers were in the top 15 in their squad, while Chelsea only had one player in the top 15, and that player was Kai Havertz, and he would have been 17th in Liverpool. Um, Conte, Marcus Alonso, Ben Chilwell, Reese James all averaged more touches in the final third than Pulisic and the other Chelsea attackers. Right. Christian Pulisic and most other attackers in the um, – he says here, uh, Pulisic averaged 25 touches per match in the attacking third. Reese James averages 40. Christian, and he closes by saying, Christian Pulisic and most other attackers in the modern game is at his best when he's allowed to get the ball in space and playing at a tempo that is conducive to putting attackers in spots to attack. Okay, that's not Chelsea, and it won't be. Like that's the point here is that like that's just not that's not Tuchel's system. There, you know, he wants to use overlapping fullbacks. Uh, to be like the, the the focal point of the attack, and if you know that's it's not going to be there. there well, look, at the, is, look at the Reese James goal at the weekend yeah. as well. How high he found himself. Right, and look, that was also on a, a quick counter on a giveaway. Yeah, yeah. But but the point is like that's their attack is not necessarily going to be focused on their sent on their strikers, and so you know like they don't. These guys just don't see enough of the ball, and they've all become convenient punching bags. Whether it was Pulisic at first, then it was Lukaku, now it's Kai Havertz, it was Timo Werner all along. It's that that just can't be a coincidence. Like it, it's the way that they play, and these high-priced attackers are not going to thrive at that club. The club still might thrive. 
as we saw over the weekend. They could still be great, but it's not necessarily going to be because of their attacking players. They find other ways to do it. They, they're stingy in defense. That run in the Champions League, that was all because of their defending. Right. They were not conceding goals. Um, so like if, if you are a fan of an individual player who is of that position – to me, I've kind of seen enough, and I've seen another guy. Other guys go through there; it doesn't work. I don't think it's going to work for him. So I just don't. Have you a place in mind, a landing spot? I mean, not necessarily. I guess if it was Newcastle, okay. Well, say, um, watching Newcastle at the weekend, maybe they could use they could him. Use it. Yeah. They they could maybe use it. But yeah, I, I that would be interesting. I mean, I don't know if he were to go off to Italy, uh, to one of those teams, you know. Maybe play prominent role in the in the Champions League. I don't know. I don't know, but it just doesn't feel like it's going to be there. And even if he gets his run of games through injury or Tuchel, I don't know, Pulisic in training somehow restoring Tuchel's faith uh, in him, I still don't think that that's the answer. I just think when he's playing for that club, the opportunities are just f- too few and far between. I think he's still going to be there unless they can bring someone else in. Basically, I know that sounds very basic and simple, but you might have to resolve uh, resign yourself to that fact. Yeah. So, again, not necessarily a knock on Chelsea. Just It's just how they play. We'll do a quick mailbag, Andrew. Oh, okay. You don't want to do one? <laughs> Did I say that? Okay. I said, oh, okay. Oh, are you, are you done talking about Pulisic? I am done, yeah. <laughs> just wanted to be sure. Oh, my God. No, I don't mean it like that. I, I didn't want to be hurrying you along. I'm it's, done. Okay. What, what's in your precious mailbag? I created an atmosphere now. <laughs> Um, Charlie Brady kicks us off. There's only two in the mailbag, so. Uh, what oh do you guys God, think? Were they on strike? <laughs> there was more, but it, we've covered them, so I don't want to be repeating. Yeah, it. I saw there was a question about Brandon Vasquez. I did a whole thing on him last week. Yeah. Um, so Charlie Brady, what do you guys think about Arlo White becoming the new lead commentator for the Live Golf Tournament huh. and signing on? Well, he's already signed on with the Chicago Fire. So we we don't know, and, and Arlo hasn't said exactly how it went down. Did NBC ask him to leave? Did the Live Golf Tournament come in and tempt him away? And then Peter Drury comes in? Or did NBC want Peter Drury and told Arlo he'd have a reduced role? Or so? We don't know. And Arlo hasn't said yet. Um, now, in terms of him with the, uh, the Chicago Fire, this is from the Chicago uh, Sun-Times online. Uh, the Chicago Fire o- owner, Joe uh, Mansueto, explained why the fire stuck with Arlo White. I like Arlo White, Mansueto told the Sun-Times. He's one of the best soccer comment- TV announcers on the planet and I respect his right to work for whomever he wants to work for. I think that's a slippery slope trying to judge countries and evaluate them and determining who you want to have relationships with. Um, he goes on to say, it's fine to criticise. It's very fair if you don't like a relationship someone has with a particular country, but I would draw the line at withdrawing employment from somebody because of those relationships. Um so yeah, we don't really know how this came about and it's kind of difficult until Arlo says, well, look, I needed work and I had, I got the boot. Right. Or I decided the money was too good to turn down and, and I left. You're I, right, we don't know. So we don't know. Um, lots of people want our thoughts on Glasgow Rangers, Malik Tillman and his recent run of good form. He played tonight, started centre forward against PSV in a 2-2 draw. Uh, in their Champions League qualifier, he was substituted, I think, in the second half. But he's had a really good run with Rangers of late, and people want to know. And I think he needs another run with the US team. However, time's a wasting. There is limited time. I think time. he'll get one. You I think, think at the next set of uh, friendlies, I believe that he will be included in that squad. Okay. Uh, 
I would direct people, if, if you are curious about this, one of uh, the great friends of this podcast, Doug McIntyre, yes. within the last hour, has a, a piece up on um, foxsports.com, uh, Malik Tillman making case for spot on plane to Qatar, and it's a whole feature on him. So, Especially if they get it done and qualify for the Champions League proper. That, to me, would be certainly a big, big uh, endorsement. But yeah, check that out from Doug. Yeah, and now it's time for the greatest segment in the history of the podcast. I'll check the web. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to present to you the internet. I went on the internet this week. Oh, God. And I found this. What did you find? Well, I found on the internet that uh, Matthew Hoppy. Oh, he signed for Middlesbrough, which we knew. He made his debut at the weekend. Uh, and in the comments, they say never go in the comments, but I went into the comments below uh, the Middlesbrough post about uh, Matthew Hoppy. And somebody posted a Budweiser UK advert that I'd forgotten from about 15 years ago when they first became a Premier League sponsor. And uh, I should put a warning on this. This may... This is very... I don't care for this. This this may um, offend some of our US listeners. When Budweiser became the official beer of the FA Premier League, we had a vision. Soccertainment. So forget halftime presentations. Let's have monster trucks. Middlesbrough FC? How about Middlesbrough Red and White Sox? And who wants boring nil-nil draws when you can have at-a-time multi-ball? But then we thought, nah, so how about you do the football, we'll do the beer. I hate that. I I would think any American soccer fan would hear that and cringe at the entire thing. Yeah. This, this acknowledgement from this company, from Budweiser, that Americans know nothing about this sport and that we want to take it. And I mean, look, I know it's all parody. It is parody. It's so, just So fun. I'm taking it way too seriously. But I, when I was watching, I said, oh, no, 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 stop, please. Please, you're 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 hurting us so badly. But that's from 2005. That's 17 years ago. Uh, but still, watching it now has not aged well. Uh, it's not for me. Now the multi-ball thing. I was laughing at that whole idea. <laughs> you know, just balls being pelted at people. Yeah. Uh, and then I, a friend of mine, Vinny, uh, sent me just by happenstance today. Sent me a tweet of a game, which is a soccer hybrid, which FS2 are pushing, called Men's Omega Ball Championship. Where there's four, where there's three goals in a circle. There's three teams playing against each other for the one ball. So like your version of World Cup in the playground. And oh, I did see this. I did see it. What? It's different. Kobe Jones was co-commentator on this thing. Yeah, I, I don't know what to say about it. It's different. It's, it's they're thinking. It, I thought it would be good. It wasn't. I mean, look, a lot of sports go through these phases. Like I remember in basketball, there was briefly uh, like a trampoline league. Go go <laughs> on YouTube. Yeah, for, it's wild. So you could have dunks and everything. Oh, but like from like major dunks and like, like meetings at the rim between like, the, like air traffic control dunks. It's like every possession we're gonna get. Like something wild happening above the rim, so like yes, different leagues go through this where they tinker with stuff and see like what sticks. <laughs> this I don't, I don't put too much. Omega ball, three teams uh, all fighting for the same ball, trying to score into the other team's net. Any one of the other team's nets. Yeah. Interesting. There we go. Is that um, it? What's that? Is that it? No. Uh, oh. Quickly, just to draw attention, as if you haven't seen it already, uh, Kylian Mbappe gave oh, up. Right, right. He just gave up. 
there was a breakaway. I think it was either Neymar or Messi had the ball, and he's running. He's like, oh, I'm not going to get this. And he stops his run. Well, he looked annoyed that he, the ball wasn't passed. Passed him. him, and he just stopped. But the- like I've watched it a couple times. He's not like it, not really a pass that makes a ton of sense. Like I don't know what he's expecting. I don't know what's going on with him. It feels like something not so great is happening. But it it was just so bad. And and then the ball is shot across the goal. And if he'd continued his run, he would have been in at the back post. But uh, yeah, that went that went viral everywhere, and it was very very strange. A bad look for him. Very bad look. I think that team, that whole experiment, is not going to finish. I don't care who's coaching them. I think that thing is doomed to fail. Wow, just is. And that was things I saw on the internet. The reduced I saw something version. on the internet. Oh, you're allowed to get involved. Oh yeah, I think this is probably more important than any of the ones that you saw on the internet. Ooh! The Reportedly, uh-huh. we think right. that the kits for the U.S. men's national team have been leaked. Oh, great! For the World Cup. Well, what we saw seemed to have a lot of weight behind it. USMT only, who you uh, adore, mm-hmm. um, tweeted them out, and then Weston McKinney got in the mentions. Seeming he kind of validated validated them. the report, saying and validated the fact that he didn't like them. They stink. I now we're, we they we, they didn't have the the Nike emblazoned on them the night tick so maybe they're not in the final stage but okay. I hope there's a better final stage than what was served up in those pictures if those are it they stink they're horrible if those are it it ain't good no it ain't good you I literally don't... would be better if the night before they tore up an American flag and, and just restitched it into a jersey for every player I don't know why this is so bleeping difficult well they, they muddied the waters because they made so many of them and they made so many changes. Like, you never knew what the U.S. home kit, kit would be. Can't they just pander to the fans just once? We all want horizontal red at the Waldo. The Waldo. We all want it. Just give it to us. Yeah, why not? Everyone wants it. Yeah, and leave that. And that's your home jersey forever. You can do variations on it, but that's it forever. And then go crazy with your away shirt. Go do whatever you want. Well, I don't know about that. Oh, They've done that put here. Put a print of the Golden Girls on the front of it. Wow. Yeah, go get out there. Like, I, like your, I like where your head is All TV shows, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Bonanza. Like, don't care. Knight Rider on the front. Don't care. But give them the wall. Most people want the Waldo kit. And it's got a great history. So give it to them. And we'll see. Like we said, we don't know. But seeing Weston McKinney come into the mentions... To, what did he say? I tried to tell him. I tried to tell him. I warned him or something. Yeah. By the way, speaking of which, there's also reports that there's going to be some sort of, I don't know if it's a, necessarily an all or nothing, but a, a docu-series following the U.S. men leading up to the World Cup. Yes. Where they're going to have film crews kind of with the players getting ready and things like that. I'm in. You know me. I just said, I love it. Well, I love this stuff. I want to know every one of these guys. Just like Weston McKinney, uh, I'm warning them. Let the camera run. Pick up what you pick up. Get all the footage. I don't want to have narratives formed. Show me everything. I've said how much I love this team and the vibes of this team and the way so, they yeah, see it. So you, I'm, I'm, I'm so in on it. I can't wait. Um, I hope it's not a distraction. Being followed no, around. Don't worry about followed these, these around for a play- World Cup. No, these guys are playing uh, the big in the Premier League. Cameras and- in the dressing room during a World Cup. Um, no, that doesn't. That doesn't work. Oof, I don't want any of that. That doesn't. Work. I, if I'm a manager, I want no part of it. Hey, this was fun. Uh, lots of action, of course. Like you said, Liverpool and Manchester United coming up on... That's a Monday game, I believe. Uh, yep. So, 
We'll, Another uh, one. Yeah, we'll have uh, we'll have more on that. I'll watch more All or Nothing because I'm in. Thanks to Jack Pitbrook. To you, I say. Take you later, fun boy. See you later, man. Take care. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 